resurrection joy. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. I really do believe that one of the great elements that sometimes flows in and out and more out than in is the experience of Christian joy. It's the experience of resurrection joy that has the power to lift Christians to a kind of life and living that is different than so many others experience. Certainly different than most other religions offer. And yet, in this world in which we live, it is very hard sometimes to have that regular feeling of joy, especially if we're looking for a feeling and not an experience. Because feelings come and go, and feelings are are subject to the circumstances in our lives. But the reality is that as long as we can keep first things first in our hearts, by following Jesus, this experience of joy-filled living is meant for us all, every one of us. But in order for that to happen, we must stay closely tied to our Creator through the vine that is the Christ. We must stay closely tied to one another as the body of Christ so that we may live as the people of the body of Christ live. So when we talk about resurrection and joy today, we conclude that series, and it's appropriate that we come to the table to do it. Because in this table and in its expression, there is the reality of what we proclaim as Christians. In fact, today's text that Paul wrote in probably the mid-50s A.D., was the very first written account of the origin of the Lord's Supper. I know we get confused about that probably because you read about it in the Gospels, right? But the first time it was actually written down and circulated, it was circulated in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Now, it was not a joy-filled letter that he sent to the church at Corinth because they were experiencing a lot of difficulties in their lives. And one of those had to do with how they were participating in the Lord's Supper. Now I want to say something. I want you to remember it throughout the sermon and not forget it. This letter and its instruction that Paul is writing to the church is not in regard to the character necessarily, uh, certainly not principally, in the Christians at Corinth, but rather is written to them in this part of the letter about how they worshiped. Now, Israel is worshiping, and how we worship a reflection of our character, certainly it is. But when we come to the Lord's table especially, we need to come with a certain kind of mindset in order to worship our Savior, the one whose life, death, and resurrection we remember. And that was the problem in this part of the letter that he's addressing. Now, they had written him, as you heard clearly in those first verses. Uh, in fact, in a couple of other places earlier in the chapter, they made, he made mention of the fact about how they were going to the table of the Lord regularly. And that was a good thing. They were almost boastful about that fact. But in reality, what Paul discovered was the way they were going to the table was a problem. And because of that, he wanted to address it in this, in this place. That love feast, that fellowship meal, was meant to be shared with all. It was meant to be the one place and was the hallmark of the early Christian church that gathered in house churches that all were equal. The wealthy person who was a follower of Christ was in the same relationship to God through Christ as was the poorest of their midst, including the slaves. 
This was the first and the most important way in which the church, as it gathered, symbolized the kingdom of God and symbolized to the world what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Now, what had happened was, however, as often happens in the church, as soon as we make something a part of ritual, as soon as we make something a part of our regular participation, something we do regularly, we can forget its original power, its original meaning, if we're not careful. We can come to the table casually, just as they came to the love feast casually. They were first there, they were hungry, so they ate till they were full, without always considering would there be plenty left for others who would come after them who would not be able to bring much, but would bring what they could. Now, it would also have been a good idea if they had just waited until they were all there, and then it would have been obvious how much was there. It's one of the reasons I don't like to eat first. I mean, how badly does it look if the pastor is eating early in the line, and then they get to the end and there's not enough food for someone else who's a guest? You notice all the times you'll see in churches where guests hang back to the end. We should be ushering the guests in first, right? We should be sure that when we went through the line, we didn't take too much until we knew that everyone had enough, right? Now, that's not always the way it works, though, is it? And it's not just children that I'm talking to today, right? I'm talking to all God's children. You see, the natural thing for us to do sometimes is to satisfy our own desires and needs without remembering to share. Every opportunity that you have as parents, grandparents, adults in the church to teach our children what sharing means is an opportunity you should not pass up. You say, well, it's not for me to tell that child going to get their third piece of cake on Wednesday night that shouldn't get three. Yes, it is for you to do that. Because if their mother or father were there, they would have probably told them, but they probably weren't. Yes, it is. They're your children too. And every time we teach them to share and every time we exhibit to them a heart and a life that's interested in sharing from their bounty with others, it teaches them. Every time you come to this chancel rail to receive the communion elements, when you leave a gift there, you should give it to your children to take down with you. You should let them know that we put that there because we're blessed and we have more than we need and someone next week may not have all they need, even to feed their children. And we put that money down there so that it can be used to feed them. Because that's what the Christian family does. We take care of one another. And that's all Paul was asking them to do. Now, he gets real stern about it. And that stern part is what got preached for a lot of years in the church. Don't you come to that table unworthily, because if you do, you're going to get in trouble. God's going to zap you. And so a lot of people actually wouldn't come to take communion because they had a sin in their life or everything wasn't perfect. And they said, well, I'm not taking communion today. I know I, made, I committed a sin last week. That's exactly the person who needs to come to the table. In fact, everybody who sinned last week, and that's all of us, needs to come to the table, right? I mean, it's a table that's open and encouraged for everybody to participate in. It's not just for those who are perfect or worthy somehow of the meal because none of us are. So it's not, the instruction by Paul is not meant to keep you away from the table, but just to remind you when you come, come with the right heart. Come with the right spirit. Come with a heart that's open to receive all God's grace, praying for your brothers and sisters who are coming to receive the same grace too. A good practice for that is when you come to the table, one of the things that I'm sure people 
come to a Methodist church and they see people come down to the front and receive communion and it gets all quiet and everybody else is just sitting there wondering, what am I supposed to do? I mean, I'm not in line yet. You're supposed to wait. You're supposed to pray. You're supposed to evaluate your life. You're supposed to pray for the people you see kneeling. If you know anything about their lives and what's going on in their life, that's what a fellowship meal was meant to do too, by the way, is to share our lives together. It's why when we meet on Wednesday nights and eat, we should eat at different tables every week with different people. And you say, now, preacher, you're really meddling now. I know that. And I know you really need meddling with, and so do I. Because we get in routine. We like to see our friends and to eat with them. How are you ever going to get to know the rest of the body if you don't take the time to listen to their story and what's going on in their life? How are you ever going to get to know how to pray for them unless you spend time with them? It's just not possible. That's the reason we have core groups as well. One of the big hallmarks of small group ministry is you get to know a small group of people, learn about them, and become close with them. So you can pray for them and they can pray for you. And so when Paul arrives here in this letter, he's giving them instruction about this supper. And this is what brings the joy to us. When we can come to the table rightly, I think it means we are understanding what direction was given with this meal. Listen to this text. It begins in verse 23 where he's talking about this Lord's Supper and how we're to celebrate it and why. First of all, he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord's Supper is rooted in history. It actually happened. It was passed on by Jesus to those early disciples. Now, you'll have to, with me, wonder how Paul got the direct word. I don't know. Some commentators will tell you he probably heard the, the, the first 11 talking about it after he's going through his education. He just happened to be the first one to write it down. Some other people will say to you that Paul got a direct word from the Lord. Now, whether it was directly from the Lord or whether it was from the Lord via the disciples, I don't know and I don't really care. And here's why. I trust those early disciples who sat at that table with the Lord after the resurrection. They were so filled with joy, they didn't miss a word that Jesus said. And if they told Paul, he got the real scoop because he also was one of them taking the word to the people of the world. But first of all, let's remember it's rooted in history. History. Did I say history? Is it in the scriptures? It is. It's historical, and yet it's in the scriptures. It's in the scripture marked by history so that we would remember this was an event that actually occurred. And every time I come to that table and every time we celebrate it, I'm aware of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I don't come sadly, although I'm aware of my sin, because after all, there's the resurrection. I come knowing my sin is forgiven. That's what the table's all about, which leads me to what he says about the second time. It's not only rooted in history, but the Lord's Supper is about God's gift. And that's what he says in verse 24. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's God's gift. Yes, life, death, and resurrection. Do this in remembrance of me. And as soon as we remember the resurrection, we remember that when we're talking about death at the table, we're talking about death that brings life. That's a joyful thing. That's not a sad thing. We don't need to come to the table morbid. We need to come with people filled with joy because we are celebrating the gift of joy we know in our salvation because our death has been turned to life. 
it's not a morbid remembrance, but rather should be the remembrance of the love and forgiveness we know in Jesus. And if that doesn't fill you with joy, then you just hadn't got it yet. You can't come to this table casually and come worthily too. You have to come to the table thinking about all that God has given you, celebrating everything in your life that's joyful because of the presence of God. Otherwise, it's just a piece of bread and just some juice. It's nothing more. And at its worth, it's defaming the Lord to take it in a uncaring spirit and we have all God's people when we come to leave a gift at the chancel rail think about how many people who are in need in the church and Cindy disperses that money so carefully for the most part not for the most part carefully but she does almost all of the work in it and she talks to me about it and she takes care of it to see that it's used wisely but also she's always kind of concerned about whether or not we have enough for the people who are coming and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't even have enough for our own members when they hit a hard week or an unexpected occurrence in their life. And that's why that chancel rail gift is so important because death is meant to bring life in us. And then in verse 25, he makes a third point about this celebration. He says it's a new covenant. We're entering a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that has demands connected to it. It's connected all the way back as we look back in Israel's history to the Passover and forward to the resurrection of Christ and new life in heaven forever. So it's a gift that most looks backward and forward at the same time. This new covenant is a covenant of joy. It's not burdened down by the law. It's not so heavy that you can't come to the table and receive it. We confess our sins and then we come joyfully to hear a word of grace from God. Talking to our confirmands this morning, one of the hardest struggles for them is because of how we handle our own Christian faith. Several of them said, when asked the question, how is your relationship to Jesus? Do you feel close to Jesus? Does Jesus feel close to you? Most of them said something like, either I don't really know him personally in that way, or I've talked to him, but I never hear him talking back. Or I'm close, but I feel like I could be closer. When's the last time you told your children, your grandchildren, what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus? How do you explain that to them? Now, some people can say, well, I actually hear God's voice in my head. Most people can't say that. Most people don't hear God's voice in their head, but they hear God in the scriptures. They feel God's presence when they pray. They hear what they think God is putting in their head as thoughts for them. But when you're 12 years old, you're trying to figure that out. You're at square one. They need a lift and a help along the way. They're not as mature and wise as our youth section over here, who's also filled with a huge breakfast this morning. I'm glad they're still awake. I'm proud of them. If I'd have eaten all that breakfast, I might not have been. But they, they come and they, they are much different from the time they're in the 6th grade till they're in the 11th or 12th grade. They have a much more personal relationship with God. And you should too. But if they're never going to know it unless you talk to them about it. They can't get it by osmosis. 
You can be so close to Jesus that you smell like Jesus, but if you don't tell them that, they're not going to get it. You've got to put words into it. You've got you to you say, well, preacher, I don't know how to say that. Why? Work at it. Be a bumbling, stumbling person trying to because that little person is worth it. And they can only understand what you have grasped before them as you pass it along. Share that story about why God is so intimate to you. And then lastly, in terms of this gift, he said to them in verse 26, do this always in remembrance of me until he comes. Until he comes. And the real joy is this thing is for real. This word that's in history is going to be in history again. I know, I know. Wow. Yeah, he's going to return on the cloud, right? Who believes that, really? I do. I believe he's coming. And I believe when he comes, everybody will see him. You say, that's not possible. You can't see Jesus everywhere on earth at the same time. He can only be one place at once. And obviously, you do not know Jesus when you're thinking that thought. He will appear everywhere at the same time to everyone. He can handle it. Just like the Holy Spirit can be inside every one of us at the same time now. And you say, that doesn't work. That doesn't compute. I don't care. I don't care that it computes. I don't own the Holy Spirit. So when he's with me, that doesn't mean he can't be with you. And when Jesus returns, don't worry. Everybody will know it. You just don't want to be one of those who are shocked by it and terrified by it. You want to be one of those who are shouting hallelujah to the Son of God who's returning. Because then the joy of the faith will be filled with you. So when you come to the table today, my children, be aware of this teaching of Paul, that this is a table rooted in history, that this is a table that's about God's gift, that this is a table that's about a new covenant. This is a table about proclaiming the Lord's return. Don't forget it, and don't forget others who need to know it too. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.